1: a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The war came to an end with the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. It didn't end with a final shot or a white flag, but with brilliant white lights, a hundred thousand of them to be exact. The beginning of the end happened during the planning phase, Organizers wanted to make the fair grander and more advanced than the much-talked-about Paris World's Fair of 1889. American technology had seen amazing innovations in recent years. Internal combustion-powered tractors, the incandescent lamp, and the rotary dial, just to name a few. And one more marvel, the introduction of the skyscraper, right there in Chicago, five years prior. Organizers had plans as big as the city itself. And, for the first time since its invention, the Ferris Wheel would make its debut at the fair. With the recent invention of the electric light, the organizers came up with an idea that would surely outshine Paris's event. Literally. That light the entire 690-acre city. Keeping with the tradition of envisioning the future, Chicago saw the potential for electricity to light buildings and homes everywhere though chicago's prediction was more a foregone conclusion than dreamy speculation most homes in the late 1800s still used kerosene lamps or candles sure there were the lucky few homes and businesses that already used electricity companies supplying wire and power were already rushing to control as much of the market as possible but lighting up the entire world's fair was no small undertaking The company that could pull off such an endeavor would certainly win the lion's share of the market. Needless to say, the bidding war between companies vying for the honor to light the world's fair was fierce. General Electric made the first bid, offering to do the job at a cool $1.8 million. That's over $50 million today. The organizers declined, though, looking for a cheaper alternative. Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company, with brilliant inventor Nikola Tesla on board, bid a bit over $500,000. At nearly a third of General Electric's bid, the organizers accepted. The deal made news worldwide. Chicago's exposition would be the first fair powered by electricity. Tesla originally planned on using General Electric light bulbs, But Thomas Edison, who held the patent and owned GE, didn't feel the need to lose gracefully. Knowing it would put Tesla and Westinghouse in a bind, he refused to sell a single bulb to them. Westinghouse sued, but the courts sided with Edison. Tesla and company had the means to power the fair, but they didn't have a single light. With less than a year to go before the fair opened, they needed to get creative. The young inventor came up with a solution that didn't infringe on Edison's patent. The double-stopper light bulb had a shorter lifespan but was sufficient to use for the fair and until Edison's patent expired. Westinghouse amped up production, producing 120,000 bulbs along with 12,000 horsepower polyphase generators capable of supplying enough power to keep those lights glowing, plus enough electricity to provide a method of travel to and from the fair. The city's elevated railroad system would whisk up to fifty thousand people an hour to and from the fairgrounds. Inside, electric rail cars, electric boats, and even a moving sidewalk would be ready to move visitors around the exposition. On opening day, May first, eighteen ninety-three, a packed crowd gathered at the fairground entrance in anticipation. President Grover Cleveland stepped up to the podium and gave a short speech. When he finished and declared the fair open, he thrust his fist down on a gold-plated button to start up the fair's machinery and turn on all those lights. The crowd gasped in astonishment and delight. People streamed through the gates. Aside from the expected cotton candy and other snacks, an entire section devoted to culinary innovation greeted them. There were livestock arenas, vendor tents, buildings with shows and art exhibits, and that Ferris wheel towering over it all. Wishful homeowners admired fully electric kitchens, complete with dishwashers, electric hot plates, ranges, broilers, and kettles. Inventors showed off electric bed warmers for those cold winter nights and electric fans for those sweltering summer days. Businessmen gawked at the neon lights and fax machines. Naturally, Westinghouse had their own exhibit. They happily demonstrated to the crowd how the fair benefited from alternating current. Opposite from them was General Electric with the Edison Tower, showcasing direct current. The day turned to dusk, and visitors still had so much to see. They were thrilled that the brilliant lights allowed them to stay longer. One newspaper reporter wrote that the exposition was worthy of world attention. The city and sky on the first evening were alight as though transformed by a magician. The dome at the heart of the exposition glowed as though draped in stars. The lights dazzled everyone and became the talk of the nation, and, yes, the world. The way we use electricity had changed forever. In the public's mind, Westinghouse and Tesla's alternating current had won the war, and had stepped into center stage. And when the fair finally came to a close, it seemed everyone couldn't have been more pleased with how things turned out. Well, almost everyone. Because in the War of the Currents, there was one person in particular who didn't like to be outshined. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Like every good war story, the most pivotal moments occurred long before the first battle. Thomas Alva Edison was born on February 11th of 1847. He was the seventh child born to parents Samuel and Nancy, though only four of them made it to adulthood. Perhaps surprisingly, his education was sparse. He left school in 1859 to work on the train route between Detroit and Port Huron. Then, just a few short years after the Civil War, an emerging technology swept the nation, the telegraph. Edison became so captivated with this new invention that he quit his route on the railroad and found employment as a telegraph operator. The job allowed him to work anywhere in the country, and he traveled extensively. But Edison had some difficulty with his chosen profession. He was deaf in one ear and had limited hearing the other due to childhood illnesses. This made understanding and translating the Morse code to English much harder. He refused to give up, though. He improved the device, making it easier for deaf and hard of hearing people to use. Edison's interpretation of the telegraph used a metal stylus and chemically-treated paper. His version greatly improved upon the old one, recording up to a thousand words a minute. He found he enjoyed the process of creating new things, and worked on another invention, the universal stock printer. In the early days, his inventions earned him a tidy sum of $40,000, roughly $700,000 today, So Edison quickly gave up working with telegraphs and moved to New Jersey to set up a lab and invent full-time. When Alexander Graham Bell created the telephone, Edison set out to improve it. He developed a microphone that used carbon to create variable resistance in a current which could transmit over much longer distances. His basic method would be used until digital telephones appeared in the 1980s. His inventions or the improvement of other inventions earned him a new nickname the wizard of menlo park the press reported on him frequently and the public anxiously awaited to see what he'd come up with next in 1878 harnessing electricity became his new obsession edison bought patent after patent along with power plants placing himself in the perfect position to monopolize the market As he had with other inventions, he quickly set out to improve on how electricity was being used. Making it safer and cheaper would also mean more customers. His first goal was to replace the gaslight. The idea wasn't exactly new. The light bulb had been invented back in 1835, but Edison felt he could do it better and more affordably. As smart a businessman as he was an inventor, he convinced financial heavyweights like J.P. Morgan and the Vanderbilts to invest in his research. The funds were enough to found the Edison Electric Company, which later became General Electric. His first real breakthrough came in 1879. Edison came up with a light bulb that used a platinum filament. In 1880, he carbonized bamboo, creating a long-lasting and affordable light bulb. Overnight, Edison became the biggest name in science. But light bulbs don't work without current and he needed electrical infrastructure he chose what's called direct current or dc with dc the current flows in one direction in september of 1882 the very first power station opened in new york city 59 paying customers immediately signed up before long more plants were built as you might imagine the gas companies weren't exactly thrilled They argued that direct current was dangerous for everyday use by the general public. And there were drawbacks. Namely, direct current couldn't transfer past a mile, so customers needed to be rather close to a power plant. And costs were high, copper wiring was expensive. Direct current wasn't the only game in town, though. There's also alternating current, or AC, which periodically reverses direction, and it has fewer limitations on distance. Farther distance, fewer power plants, cheaper to operate, and lower costs overall. A second transformer could also lower the voltage. George Westinghouse was not only a proponent of AC power, he was an economic powerhouse. He'd invented the air brake, which had set him up financially with the railroads. But Westinghouse had a problem. No amount of enthusiasm or money made AC work as well as Edison's DC. That didn't mean he didn't have a solution, though. He hired a former Edison employee, a man named Nikola Tesla. Touted as an exceptionally brilliant engineer, Tesla had immigrated from Serbia to New York City in 1884. Upon arriving, he applied with Edison, coming highly recommended and regarded. He handed Edison a letter of recommendation that read, My dear Edison, I know two great men, and you are one of them. The other, is this young man born on July 10th of 1856 Nikola Tesla was one of four siblings he'd become fascinated with electricity after a demonstration from his physics professor able to do complex calculations in his head and recall images with amazing detail he completed his schooling in three years instead of four though he left before acquiring his degree he arrived in New York with the aforementioned letter and four cents in his pocket He knew of Edison and wanted the chance to work with such a great inventor. And Edison hired him, offering him a $50,000 bonus if he could improve the direct current generators. Tesla loved a challenge, and in 1885, he provided his new employer with a solution, an alternating current generator. Edison scoffed at the idea, calling it splendid but impractical. It didn't help that his nemesis, Westinghouse, also believed alternating current was the future of electricity, Though Tesla had met his end of the bargain, Edison did not. He refused to pay his new hire, telling him, when you become a full-fledged American, you will appreciate an American joke. Tesla didn't find the situation funny at all, and promptly quit. As a new immigrant, employment was hard to find. Still, he found work digging ditches. It wasn't much, but he remained determined to save enough to work on his own inventions. The two would cross paths again and not just during the finale at the World's Fair in Chicago. In fact, sparks were about to fly. Tesla didn't give up. Edison might have scoffed at his suggestion, but the idea of an alternating current generator was too tempting to walk away from. While digging ditches made for long, tiresome days, he worked out an invention in his head. Later, he'd jot the diagrams and notes onto paper. And they worked as jotted, flawlessly, in fact, without ever changing a thing. Tesla had what's called eidetic memory, which is the ability to vividly recall an image, even if you've only seen it once. It's occasionally found in very bright children, but rarely ever in adults. Tesla patented his inventions, said to be the most valuable since the creation of the telephone. In 1888, George Westinghouse took notice, and not only licensed the young inventor's patents, but he also hired him for $60,000, plus royalties and stock. If Westinghouse could corner the market on electricity, Tesla would be one of the world's wealthiest men. The company soon set up their new engineer in a lab not far from Edison's office. It must have felt pretty satisfying for Tesla. Shortly afterward, he invented a coil capable of generating high voltages and frequencies. In turn, this helped create new forms of light bulbs such as fluorescent and neon. It also had another use, sending radio signals. And that gave Tesla another idea. He pitched J.P. Morgan some ideas for wireless transmission. The financial tycoon loved the ideas so much, he spent $150,000 to build a huge transmission tower. There was a problem, though. Legal issues with one Guglielmo Marconi and a prior patent. It would be years before the Supreme Court overturned Marconi's patent, giving credit to Tesla for the first patent in radio technology. Edison watched Tesla and Westinghouse carefully. Though he'd treated the young inventor poorly, he still realized Tesla was a genius in his own right. It didn't take much to see that alternating current was closing the gap on direct current. Rural areas favored A.C. In many out-of-the-way places, D.C. just wasn't practical. All told, Westinghouse had recently set up 68 power plants, closing in on Edison's 121. Like a lot of businessmen, he decided that if he couldn't make his product look better, he'd make the other guys look worse. Legal battles ensued as Edison tried to claim that alternating current infringed on his patents, He also claimed that using alternating current was inferior to his direct current system. Now, any electrician will tell you, neither current is safe. If you're not careful, electricity is unforgiving. All Edison needed to do was a little fear-mongering, show the public the dangers of alternating current. Edison already knew that most electric companies installed AC wire on poles in a less-than-cautious manner. The faster that any company provided electricity, DC or AC, to businesses and homes, the more money they made, which did not incentivize them to create robust safety measures for the linesmen installing the wire. Though linesmen frequently climbed poles upwards of 150 feet tall, they weren't offered helmets, harnesses, or other safety gear. Add to that the haphazard way the wires were attached, and it was an accident waiting to happen. That didn't stop Edison from trying to push through legislation to limit the use of alternating current specifically. When papers touted the benefits and growth of AC, Edison was quoted as saying, Just as certain as death, Westinghouse will kill a customer within six months. And when a Western Union lineman died on the job, Edison quickly pointed to it, and the press wasted little time selling papers with the gruesome story of linesman John Feeks. After a snowstorm snapped wires and plunged the city into darkness for days, New York determined that, for safety reasons, all wires should be buried instead of strung overhead. The new mayor, determined to make this a priority, set a deadline. Companies had just 90 days to finish the job, or he'd have the poles cut down. It was an impossible task, and by mid-April of 1889, the city workers began cutting down poles like they were lumberjacks. Then they rolled up the remaining wire and carried it away. It's not that the companies who owned the lines didn't try. It's how Western Union lineman John Feeks found himself on a pole in downtown New York at lunchtime on October 11th of 1889. He lost his footing on what should have been a low-voltage pole, but it wasn't. He hit the first set of wires, then tumbled toward the ground, becoming entangled in more wiring. Lunchgoers below were horrified as the corpse caught fire. To further demonstrate how horrible a death from AC was, Edison connected a dog named Dash to 300 volts of alternating current, essentially frying the poor dog. Then he performed his demonstration on more animals, using strays or dogs and cats from a shelter. Other times, he'd pay neighborhood kids a quarter to bring him pets. Most were cats and dogs, but he electrocuted a few cows and horses as well none of the deaths were quick, and that was Edison's point. Still, it wasn't enough. Tesla and Westinghouse continued to gain market share. With more safety measures now in place, and most of the wires buried underground, fewer deaths were occurring. Edison needed something that would ruin Westinghouse and Tesla. And, as it turned out, the state of New York had already offered a solution. It's a morbid origin story. Alfred P. Southwick, a Buffalo, New York dentist, had been determined to find a way to execute criminals sitting on death row. It had this obsession since 1881, when the story of a drunken dock worker piqued his interest. The worker had grabbed a large electric dynamo, and, unable to let go, had died. Coupled with Edison's demonstrations electrocuting animals, The dentist believed he had found an alternative to hanging people on death row after writing a few successful articles about using electricity to euthanize animals southwick caught the attention of a commission appointed by new york governor david hill in 1883 within the year the commission recommended carrying out executions with the electric chair they needed additional research though so they contacted edison Naturally, the famed inventor recommended the use of alternating current, and not just any AC generator, but specifically those made by Westinghouse. When a government employee working on the committee questioned him about how electricity would be used as a means of execution, Edison suggested that death row inmates should be forced to work as New York linemen. That, he assured the official, would dispatch them in short order. Harold Brown, an electrical engineer secretly on Edison's payroll, sent a scathing letter to the New York Post in June of 1888, trashing any power company using alternating current. He claimed that companies didn't care about deaths as long as they got rich, offering a cheap utility. George Westinghouse wrote his own letter to the Post the next day. In an attempt to put the situation to rest once and for all, he invited Edison to Pittsburgh so that they could talk and get past their differences, Edison refused, citing his work taking up too much of his time. In July, Brown and Edison headed to Columbia College to again demonstrate the danger of alternating current to the general public. They electrocuted one dog after another. Sickened by their casual cruelty, people yelled at them to stop, while others fled in horror. But the collusion between the two men didn't end there. Brown was selected to design the electric chair. Edison and company quickly coined the term Westinghoused for those condemned to death. Westinghouse was mortified. It never intended for the AC generator to be used for such a thing, and he refused to sell them for that purpose, but the courts forced the issue. The first person slated for execution with the new device was convicted murderer William Kemmler. An alcoholic he had, during one of his drunken stupors, grabbed a hatchet and repeatedly struck his girlfriend on March 29th of 1888. Then, calmly, he'd walked next door and confessed the crime to his neighbors. Though the case was open and shut, his attorneys argued death by electrocution was cruel and unusual punishment. The impending execution appalled Westinghouse so much, he contributed $100,000 to Kemmler's defense, the Supreme Court deemed the method humane and ruled in favor of the use of electricity and Westinghouse's generators. On August 6th of 1890, at 5 o'clock in the morning, Kemmler sat down to breakfast wearing a suit, a white shirt, and a necktie. Afterward, he prayed as a guard shaved the top of his head. At 6.38 a.m., 17 witnesses watched Kemmler enter the execution room. They remarked how cool and composed he seemed, After strapping him into the chair and covering his face with a hood, the executioner charged up the generator. They believed the shock would send him into immediate cardiac arrest. Once the switch was flipped, a thousand volts surged through his body for a full 17 seconds. When it was done, Southwick turned to the crowd, pleased with the results. He announced that the execution had been the result of hard work and study, then added We live in a higher civilization today. That's when the screams erupted behind him. And the witnesses, all looking over Southwick's shoulder, screamed too. Some ran from their seats, vomiting. Kemmler was still alive. From under the hood covering his face, he let out agonized shriek after shriek. The executioner threw the switch again, but the dynamo needed time to rebuild a charge, As the current began to slowly build, Kemmler wheezed and gasped for breath. Then 2,000 volts shocked him, causing blood vessels under his skin to rupture and his body to catch fire. Witnesses fainted. For several minutes more, the execution went on. Finally, Kemmler's body went rigid. The switch was turned off, and a physician cautiously stepped forward to check for signs of life. Finding none, he pronounced the prisoner dead. The news of the botched execution reached the press, of course. Neither Edison nor Westinghouse had predicted how it would turn out. However, Tesla had. Edison said that the execution had been sloppy, but nothing more than a temporary setback. Future executions using AC would go a lot smoother. The public disagreed. They seemed to side with Westinghouse, who said the execution had been so brutal that it would have been more humane if they would bludgeoned Kemmler with an axe. The battle between A.C. and D.C. began to wind down after that. Edison Electric merged with another company, becoming General Electric in 1892. And once Westinghouse and Tesla won the bid for the World Fair and the Niagara Falls hydroelectric project in 1893, the War of the Currents was over. By November 16th of 1896, Buffalo, New York was lit up like a Christmas tree. Tesla stated that his patent, coupled with the falls, would be enough to light up not just Buffalo, but the entire eastern United States. In the end, historians agree. It may be Edison's light bulb that lights the room, but Tesla's alternating current powers the world. Although he'd helped bring alternating current to the forefront, Tesla faded from history. In the last decades of his life, he lived in a New York hotel room. His mental health began to suffer, and it's reported that he may have had dementia. He never married and had no children. He only had a few close friends, namely the writers Mark Twain and Rudyard Kipling. Although, as his mental health deteriorated, he much preferred the company of pigeons over people and spent most of his days feeding and talking to the birds. He also developed an obsession with the number three, and exhibited a phobia of women's earrings. Nonetheless, after Tesla's death in 1943, U.S. government officials seized his possessions, including his notes and inventions. Eventually, many of them were released to his nephew, who sent them to Belgrade in 1952, for inclusion in a museum dedicated to Tesla that wound up being tightly controlled by the government there. There are rumors that some are lost or still being withheld, and it's only been over the past few decades that some of his inventions, diagrams, and notes have come back into the public eye. In one journal entry from 1926, Tesla wrote that people would one day be able to communicate with each other instantly, irrespective of distance. He believed that through such technology we'd be able to communicate on small handheld devices, not just transmitting our voices, but our images as well, all with a device small enough to fit in a pocket. His other predictions ranged from Wi-Fi to MRI to renewable energy, to the idea that someday there would be women in power. Nikola Tesla held over 700 patents, including ones for the Tesla coil, the first hydroelectric power plant, the fluorescent bulb, neon lights, the remote control, the Tesla turbine, and a radio-controlled boat. He also held the patent for a death ray. Little is known about his notes and diagrams for it, but the idea that it could work hasn't been fully dismissed. Oh, and one more thing. The battle over electric current wasn't the last time Tesla and Edison went head-to-head. One night at the turn of the century, while alone in his lab, Tesla picked up on sounds from a crystal radio. At first, he thought the sounds, which resembled voices, might be from ghosts. Later, in 1918, when he heard the sounds again, he attributed them to electrical storms rather than anything paranormal. But Edison, upon hearing that Tesla might be able to speak with the dead, wanted to best his former rival. Although he was agnostic, Edison told magazine reporters that he was working on a spirit phone, a device that would allow contact with the world beyond our own. Drawing from Albert Einstein's work on the theories of quantum entanglement and relativity, Edison invited scientists and mediums alike to test the device in 1920. The spirit phone emitted a small beam of light that Edison claimed originated from the dead. Seeing nothing supernatural about the device, though, his guests declared the invention a disappointment. Despite the failure of that embarrassing one-sided competition with Tesla over ghosts, Edison made a bet. He and engineer Walter Dinwiddle agreed that whoever died first would contact the other using the Spirit Phone. But when Dinwiddle passed late in 1920, Edison never recorded any kind of contact. Despite his many other inventions, Edison's spirit foam would go on to become his most disastrous. But, thankfully, it was a whole lot less deadly than the War of the Currents. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it.
0: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. Even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity Theft Protection starts here.
2: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R I T E R U G.com today to schedule a free in home estimate or to find a location near you. 24 month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
1: Louis Le Prince knew he wouldn't follow in his father's military footsteps. He was spending too much time at the photography studio of a family friend and it had enchanted him he took lessons from louis daguerre who was a chemist and painter but also a pioneer in photography the younger louis became enthralled with the process so when it came time to go to university he aimed for a degree in chemistry an essential field of study for anyone wishing to explore the brand new world of photography In 1866, a college friend named John Whitley extended Louis an invitation to come live in Leeds, a city in West Yorkshire, England. Once there, he discovered that John's sister, Elizabeth, also shared his love of art and was an accomplished artist in her own right. The two began dating and wed in 1869. Two years later, the couple started the Leeds Technical School of Art. Their method of putting colored photography onto pottery quickly brought them fame. The wealthy hired them for portraits, including Queen Victoria and Prime Minister William Gladstone. The Lee Prince's work was included in a time capsule and placed into the foundations of Cleopatra's needle on the bank of the Thames River. Ten years later, in 1881, they moved to the United States to work with Whitley Partners, the company who had made the time capsule. After their contract ended, the couple chose to stay and manage a small group of French artists, creating large-scale battle scene panoramas. The panoramas became quite popular and found their way to exhibits in New York, Washington, DC, and Chicago. To better capture subjects, Louis began building a new camera, one with 16 lenses. He also experimented with different film stock. The new camera allowed him to take a series of pictures, appeared to be in motion when projected in sequence he patented the camera though it needed improvements to keep the subject from appearing to jump around on the finished product he and elizabeth returned to leeds in may of 1887 where louis continued to work with moving images and various styles of new cameras in early 1888 he built a single lens camera one that allowed him to shoot stop-motion picture films The very first motion picture in history was filmed on October 14th of 1888. In the short, silent footage, Louis' son Adolf, his wife's parents, and a close friend of the family are seen walking around their garden. Louis went on to record the traffic on the Leeds Bridge, and another short film of Adolf playing the accordion. In 1889 and 1890, he worked with a mechanic to create a better projector, and when it was complete. He debuted his creation to family and friends the private showing went well so louis decided to take his invention to the general public back in the united states just before his trip though he took some time off to see his brother in dijon france then on september 16th of 1890 louis boarded a train back to leeds but when friends arrived in leeds to meet his train louis wasn't on board and neither was his luggage The French police and Scotland Yard were both called in, and friends and family orchestrated their own search. But sadly, no one ever saw Louis Le Prince again. Somehow, he had vanished, as if into thin air. Without a body or any evidence as to what had happened, all they had were theories. His grandnephew suggested Louis had died by suicide because of his debts, but that ignored the fact that Louis also had many successful inventions and patents. Elizabeth believed something more nefarious had happened to her husband. She believed he had been killed to prevent him from showcasing his newest motion picture camera. He had been happy with it and was looking forward to the trip to the United States. It's also been suggested that perhaps Louis simply abandoned his family. But there's no evidence to back up that claim either. There was no indication that his family life was anything other than stable. A few historians think his brother killed him, possibly for financial gain, and that Louis never left Dijon on that train out of France. But again, there's no evidence there. What is interesting, though, is that the very same year Louis disappeared, another man began his work in motion picture cameras, Thomas Edison. The first time he showed off his newest invention was a year later, in 1891. And we know that Edison was aware of Louis's work, because he took Louis's estate to court in 1898, declaring that he alone was the sole inventor of cinematography. Amazingly, the court ruled in Edison's favor, even though proof of Louis' patents were presented. A year later, the court overturned the verdict. So, in 1900, Edison reissued his patents and went on to dominate the film industry for decades. But that old footage, recorded with Louis's family and friends, has helped establish that the first film was shot in Leeds, England. Together with the death certificate of the family friend, who had passed away a couple of months after appearing in the film, the footage is easily dated to 1888, making it much earlier than Edison's work. Despite all of that, Edison is still the first person most people think of when they're asked about the invention of the motion picture, He may have lost the War of Currents, but his devious victory over Louis-le-Prince makes one thing clear. His reputation might be his most powerful invention of all. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring.